Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is uh, a special lecture in the Department for International Development series of lectures on HIV, AIDS, and other infectious diseases. And um, I can see that while it's examination time, we have a, a small but very high-quality audience here. That could, of course, I suppose, describe me, really. But um, <laughs> I've been working on that joke, actually, while we are waiting. Um, but I'm not an audience. Anyway, tonight, uh, Peter Piot, Executive Director of UNAIDS, is here to talk to us. And I count that as an enormous privilege because uh, Peter, as well as being uh, an extremely celebrated public health specialist, has over the last, how long have you been in the job? Uh, 13 years. 13 years. <laughs> Look how young he looks um, after all that has built an extraordinary organization, UNAIDS, which has done an, an amazing amount of good. Very few people can achieve that kind of thing, so I'm not going to introduce him in any detail. I'm not going to go through his CV. Most of you know a great deal about him. If you don't, you can look it up on the web. Peter Piot. Thank you, Tony, and good evening, everybody. Um, thank you, Tony. That's the second time that you, uh, um, well, you brought me here. And uh, I must say that um, your work has been really a, a source of inspiration. And, and several of the, um, the concepts that I will uh, discuss and things that have become slowly uh, accepted uh, in terms of what we should do on the AIDS is based uh, on your work and many of the things you said were said before their time, as is often the case, but I guess that's the role of uh, an academic. So uh, thank you for that. Um, and so what you've been doing is becoming more and more relevant uh, uh, as we enter a new phase in the fight against AIDS. And uh, I think that uh, the time has come for uh, social scientists to, uh, to contribute in a, in a very operational way to what we're trying to do. What I'd like to do this evening is to um, review a bit of the progress we've made because I think we should not neglect um, what we've been doing, why that has been so. Um, I'd like to point to some of the old and new myths that uh, are, uh, you know, are undermining basically the response to AIDS, some of them uh, coming from particularly from this country, um, and then talk about the need for a long-term view and how um, the exceptional nature of the epidemic uh, fits into that. In a few weeks' time, there will be a, a so-called high-level meeting in the uh, UN General Assembly. Okay, that's my job. That's some of this is um, a lot of rituals in the General Assembly. But on the other hand, it is that kind of uh, uh, political mobilization that has really led to the results that we're seeing today. And um, I remember in 2001 when there was a, retrospectively, a historic meeting on the 
of the UN General Assembly, a special session on AIDS. And according to The Economist, uh, five years later, this was the turning point uh, in the uh, global response to AIDS. At that meeting, all donors, except for France, all African countries, all Asian countries, were totally opposed of mentioning the word antiretroviral therapy and to have a, a target or a goal on treatment for people living with HIV. And so in that declaration of commitment that came out of it, you see only some very vague type of UN compromise language. Today, there are three million people, well, that was as of December last year, there are a bit more now, three million people in low and middle income countries that are on antiretroviral therapy. Compared to about 200,000 when we had this debate, this absurd debate in the, uh, all night long in the UN General Assembly. It's really uh, unprecedented in um, international development. And in the high-level meeting that we will have a few weeks from now, the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon issues a report on progress, and, and that's one of the highlights. About worldwide now, um, over a quarter of pregnant women have access to services to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV. It's more than the double the proportion um, that we saw when I came here last time, two years ago. That's still very disappointing. That's, that's very low. And it's not about sex and drugs, so you would assume that this is not controversial and so on, and I'll come back to that, why that is so. Equally important, there are a growing number of countries that are seeing a decline in new infections. Most of East African countries, southern Indian states, countries like Cambodia, some of the Caribbean countries, not though in Eastern Europe or Central Asia, where uh, HIV is spreading very fast. And these declines are um, associated with safer uh, sexual behavior that we see, and it's a bit the same story all over the place, um, delaying first sex, increasing condoms, less partners, and so on. But it's not one particular thing. So far for the good news, um, but as all of you know, there is also bad news. Um, two and a half million new infections last year, as a conservative estimate, I would say. And perhaps equally important is that for every two people who are newly put on uh, antiretroviral therapy, five become infected. So in other words, the gap between those who are um, benefiting from life-saving treatment and those who will need it in the, in the future, that gap is becoming wider and wider because of a fairly generalized um, failure of um, large-scale effective uh, treat, um, prevention. AIDS remains the first cause of death in Africa by far, by far, before any other uh, specific uh, cause of death. And uh, even with 3 million people on antiretroviral therapy, at the least 7 million, again by conservative estimates, uh, are in need. And in other words, the glass is half full nearly, but the, those who don't have access to treatment, uh, we know for sure will die. Now, these are... Um, some of the important lessons that I, I feel we can 
draw from the last few uh, years and, and new knowledge. One, I would say, is that it's wrong to think of AIDS as a disease of poverty. AIDS is a disease of inequality. It's not exactly the same thing. Um, it's a, a disease of inequality between men and women. Gender inequality is, is a major driver of this epidemic in many countries, of economic inequality, um, exacerbated often by migration, mobility, forced migration, often for uh, economic reasons. It's inequality on the base of sexual orientation and so on. Um, last year, I published a, a paper in PLOS Medicine with some of colleagues, and we, had, we looked at the uh, HIV prevalence and um, income distribution in, I think it was 16 or 17 African countries, and over different part, uh, time zones, at different times uh, the last uh, 15, 20 years. And with one exception, that was Cameroon, all other countries, there was the highest HIV prevalence was found in the um, wealthiest quartile percent or whatever it was, quintile that, uh, of, the, uh, of the population, and both for men and women. And um, AIDS is associated, or a transmission of HIV, with disposable income. And this is unlike any other health problem which is affecting far more the poor. When you do the same exercise for any other health issue in the same countries, it's the poor that are the most affected. And that is a, a, another challenge for, uh, also for the theologians of, uh, you know, of development practice. Um, what do we do with that and how do we approach that? And it is, and it's of course, it is that way because it is based on, you know, transmission is mostly sex and because of these inequalities, gender inequality in the first place. But we know, of course, that the downstream impact is much greater among the poor, much greater. Think just of access to treatment. A second lesson is that um, of the last couple of years that has emerged is that, um, yes, AIDS is a globalized epidemic. It's the globalization of risks, of sexual risk, if you want. Um, but it makes less and less sense to talk about the global AIDS epidemic or the pandemic. What we're seeing are many different epidemics, each with their own um, you know, characteristics and meaning also that um, we need to adapt what we're doing to these particular um, features and um, with different drivers, different presentations, and, uh, and it's still evolving. I strongly believe that we may be up for some surprises in the future. Um, but since they're surprises, we don't know what they will be. Um, but I was uh, a few weeks ago in, in Moscow for a conference on AIDS in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Now, Russia has around one million people living with HIV today. Ten years ago, who would have thought that? I mean, it was, there was just a few thousands. Um, I remember when I was working in, um, in what was then called Zaire in, in Kenya, that South Africa we considered as a very low prevalence country for HIV. And it's true. In, in the 80s, in South Africa, there was well, HIV was concentrated in white gay men. Um, we don't know how AIDS will evolve. Um, it's probable that we will see in 
many countries a continuing spread with lesser efficiency, but take, for example, countries where um, injecting drug use is a driver of the epidemic. Um, you see a, a peak and then a slowing down of new infections, which makes perfect sense. But since there are far more people who are having sex than people who are shooting drugs, even with less efficient transmission, be it male to male or men to men or to women or women to men sex, that at the end it may result in a huge number of infections if you take a long-term view. Um, we're seeing also all over Asia where we're, we've looked at it, from China to Malaysia to Indonesia to uh, also India more and more, is epidemics of HIV in men who have sex with men. It's not easy to have, let's say, representative samples, but it reminds me really of the early 80s in some of the Western countries. And you know, a provincial town in China that can mean 4 million people. Then multiply by X percent of men sex with men and with, uh, you know, what that could result in, in quite a substantive number of, uh, of new infections. And hardly anything is done about that. Um, third, what we're seeing is a continuing feminization of the epidemic. What was first described as a problem in white middle class gay men, you know, you remember, in, for those of you who are old enough, 1981, this is first report on AIDS. Tony, you're not one of them. Um, Very few in the audience. That um, now about uh, half of all uh, people living with HIV are women, but uh, in Africa it's over 60%. But again, coming just back from Eastern Europe, um, we've got now a country like Russia or Ukraine, there are over 40% of all new infections, all new diagnoses, let's put it that way, uh, are in, in women. And the question is, is this just, to use that term, feminization, or is this the beginning of generalization of the epidemic? We don't know. Um, it seems that most of the women who are diagnosed, newly diagnosed with HIV, have a history of injecting drug user, are a sex partner of um, an injecting drug user, but that seems to be less and less the case. So we are um, constantly um, learning and I think that the, um, what Tony, what you and, and uh, Alan Whiteside first described as a long wave event, I think is a notion now that is becoming more and more acceptable. Now, how did all this progress happen? It's unprecedented. I would say it's, it's a, a fortunate convergence of good politics and good science. Um, there's the activism, both in uh, some of the affected countries and in the um, and, and, and in the countries like here, high-income countries. This political leadership, I think, again, it goes back to the turning points in 2001 when there was, on the one hand, um, a summit of the then um, Organization of African Unity, now African Union, in Abuja, hosted by President Obasanjo, where 45 um, heads of state of Africa came together and really breaking the silence and taboo suddenly there was the political space in countries and then the special session in the UN General Assembly. Um, the fact that uh, um, President Bush 
created in 2003 um, this uh, initiative on AIDS, for AIDS relief, uh, whatever we may think of other aspects of the policies, but that was an act of leadership and has had a major uh, impact, the creation of the Global Fund and so on. Thirdly, I think also the fact that anti -retro, affordable antiretroviral therapy became available was a major, major um, element here, politically speaking. Because here, um, suddenly, a solution, quote-unquote, was offered for a decision-maker and something that could be counted. How many people on treatment? And that's particularly important in U.S. Congress and in organizations like DFID. You want to count in how many people. HIV prevention, it's more difficult to count because you basically need to count non-events, something that did not happen. And our methodologies are not so well developed for that um, and may never be really ideal. But so suddenly um, there was the perception that AIDS uh, had become a problem with a solution. And you don't find leaders who are willing to associate themselves with a cause without a solution. So even if we all know that treatment is not going to stop this epidemic, it was a very important element in the, in the mobilization of it. And then lastly, I would say a favorable uh, international funding climate. Um, official development assistance had gone down for many years uh, in the 90s. And in you know, 2001 and so on, it started to go up again. Now it's the last two years it went down again. But, uh, so in other words, the pie became bigger. So it was relatively easier to, to fund something new, um, like um, the, uh, the, um, the AIDS response. So I think it's not an overstatement to say that the results we're seeing today are an uh, unprecedented phenomenon in, in international development. And among all the millennium development goals, and fighting AIDS is number six, um, I think we will see many countries fully achieving them. It shows also the um, power of what, to use that old-fashioned word, international uh, solidarity. Because all this is the result of local action, but also um, global or international support. Um, and it happened without fixing all the underlying problems. One of the reasons that um, there was so much skepticism about the possibility of uh, introducing treatment for people with HIV in developing countries is that the um, health systems are inadequate, uh, there's a shortage of health uh, care workers and so on. There's a whole list, you know, you can, each of us can make a list of at least 50 reasons why this is not going to work. And the very same reasons that we were discussing five, six years ago, why this is not possible, are still there. And yet it has happened. It shows, again, if there's a movement, if there are the resources, it is possible. But now we've got to go beyond that. Looking back how we thought about um, the future uh, is always uh, an interesting exercise. What did we think about how AIDS would look like today? What did, were we right? Were we wrong? And um, what did we uh, underestimate? What did we overestimate? I think we collectively really underestimated how in our modern times how an infectious disease can take on a global, a global epidemic proportions. 
regardless of which um, scenario you take and what kind of uh, estimates, um, and whether you're very conservative or not, it is just amazing how um, in, in um, a few decades, which is nothing from a historic perspective, how um, tens of millions of people um, can become infected across the globe. It's another story of globalization of, and of the networks that exist in the world. Um, let's say there are 50 to 60 million people have become infected since uh, the early 80s. All these 60 million people are connected with each other one way or another. Had sex with each other, sharing needles, got a blood transfusion from somebody or their mother had it. That's it. There are no other ways. Just try to think. Um, it would take a lot of uh, computer power to model that. Um, but that's what has happened. We also underestimate it, and that is uh, something completely different, but the power of, of international solidarity to, um, to counter such a, uh, a global disaster, uh, that we have these results. We underestimated that we could make progress on uh, access to a fairly complex treatment, to chronic treatment in resource-poor environments. But we also underestimated the importance of the stigma, the discrimination that is still associated with HIV, the importance of culture, of the social environment for our programs, of gender inequalities, and at the same time the resistance to go beyond um, medical classic public health approaches. And finally, I think I certainly underestimated the fragility of political commitment because we've been seeing reversals of gains made in the 90s and the beginning of the century. For example, Uganda had a very strong leadership on AIDS in the 1990s. Thailand had one also, and it went away. And the result was an increase in new infections. What we overestimated, I think, was the pace of um, um, the spread of, it, of the epidemic in Asia, where um, I also thought that we would see much faster a, a generalization of the epidemic outside those who are most at risk. That, in most cases, has not happened. It may still happen. The long term, we don't know. But that, is, that hasn't happened. Um, I also thought, perhaps naively so, that uh, once there would be universal access to treatment, like in this country or in my country in Belgium, that uh, stigma discrimination would be eliminated because uh, we have now a treatable condition. That has not happened whatsoever. Um, we overestimated our capacity to come up with technological solutions. Um, still no vaccine. Um, I remember that uh, several conferences ago there was, a, there was talk about eliminating the virus from our body. So in other words, a cure. We're not there yet. Um, and um, the search for the magic technical solution, technological solution in silver bullets um, is really has not materialized. And I think we also overestimated the sustainability of prevention efforts. 
We see it all over Western Europe, increase of new infections in, uh, in gay men, in men who have sex with men. Now, before turning to the future, let me reflect a bit on some myths, current myths around AIDS, as they all have the potential to derail the current positive trajectory. And I'll, um, there are many I could think of when I was preparing this talk, but I'll limit it to six. Um, the first one is the myth, the health systems myth. The myth that if we just, if we only strengthen health systems, this will solve everything, including AIDS. You know, I, since I'm in this job, I get so many letters and emails, and Dr. Piotr, if only you would do, and then you can fill in your whatever you prefer, then you, this epidemic would go away, if only. Um, and I think this is one myth. Um, of course, our systems need to be strengthened where they're not there, and that will be good for many, many aspects. And it's essential for the sustainability of, for example, access to treatment, that we have um, well-functioning health services everywhere and a, and a healthy workforce that's there. But if we would wait until we have well-functioning health systems, um, I think that would mean millions of more deaths. Just imagine what would have happened if we would have waited to fix health systems and uh, before starting with uh, rolling out antiretroviral therapy. It would mean probably at least two million deaths. This is what would be on the conscience of the people who say just first fix health systems, millions of deaths. They would be in the cemetery by now. But AIDS has revealed the, the weaknesses, something that has been there for many years. I mean, I worked in the 70s in, in Central Africa and I was already the, the only doctor in hundreds of kilometers in surrounding. There were no nurses. There were no doctors. The health system was not functioning. So why haven't we acted earlier? It was gross neglect by the governments of these countries and by the donors not to invest in capacity, and one part of it is health systems. So we need really, uh, we need that, particularly in the long term, we need strong health systems that can ensure, from just from the AIDS perspective, and there are many other perspectives, can ensure sustainable quality antiretroviral treatment. We need them to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV because it's there where it will happen. When it comes to um, HIV prevention, except for mother-to-child transmission, most of that happens outside health systems, health services. injecting drug users, sex workers, young people, men who have sex with men, so they will not go and they will not be reached. Um, and uh, HIV prevention is in the first place about social change and about community mobilization. So I think we need to stop this stupid debate, whether we need either strengthening health systems or put the money in AIDS, we just need both. And um, dead healthcare workers, because they died from AIDS, are not going to strengthen much of the health system. We need to make sure that people stay alive. 
And after two decades of sector-wide approaches to strengthen health systems, um, it's actually a shame that all the effort was on process, nothing on outcome, nothing on results for people. At the um, H8, this is a group of the executive heads of eight um, multilateral uh, organizations, plus the Gates Foundation is WHO, the World Bank, UNICEF, uh, UNFPA, the World Bank, all these acronyms, uh, the UNAIDS, um, Gavi, and the Global Fund. We come together regularly, and we agreed among ourselves, we're going to ban from our vocabulary the, the words vertical and horizontal, because they reflect 20th century approaches. Dealing with AIDS, you can only do in a horizontal way because it goes across sectors. And um, I, I saw it in Ethiopia last month where um, the major funding for um, healthcare outside funding, for um, even building new health centers, for training healthcare workers is coming from AIDS money. That's not the most rational way to do it, I know. But that's an illustration just as in Rwanda where um, AIDS has not only revealed the problems but also has helped to um, solve problems. The second myth is that too much money is going to AIDS myth. This has been a recurrent one um, and I think will come up and resurface like it did the last week in the British Medical Journal. And um, let's look at the facts. The first fact is that um, dealing with AIDS, funding, um, fighting AIDS is actually underfunded, not overfunded. And last year, about $10 billion were spent on AIDS in low- and middle-income countries. The need is about, last year was about $17 billion. Um, and that need is going up. Um, Secondly, it's a relative thing. All development areas, all health areas are underfunded. That is true, and we should not um, ignore that. Thirdly, um, investments in, in AIDS are going to remain essential in, in those countries that are heavily affected by AIDS in order to achieve economic and social development. So cutting, let's say, on AIDS programs will mean in the end that we will, that the bill will get bigger and bigger. One of the lessons of AIDS is the old slogan, act now or pay later. Why am I saying that? The more people become infected because of lack of effective uh, prevention programs, the higher the bill for treatment, the higher the bill for loss of productivity. So there's only one way out, and that is to increase overall spending, and that donor countries such as the UK respect the commitments that were made to spend 0.7% of GDP on um, international development. A third myth is that it's time to normalize AIDS, that AIDS is just like any other disease. I would call that the medical myth. And that's, that's a dream. That should be, ideally, that's where we, we should get to. But it's far too soon. Far too soon 
except for a few things. One, we need to make sure that indeed, as I mentioned when we talked about the health system, Smith, that uh, um, treatment of AIDS should be as part of a normal system. I don't know about the UK here, but in my own country, 10 years ago, um, if you needed antiretroviral treatment, you would go to a specialist clinic and or a specialist. Today, you go to your general practitioner, and the general practitioner takes care of you unless and until you develop some complications, and then you go to the infectious disease specialist or an AIDS clinic or whatever you. Um, so we need to normalize that. We need to normalize mother-to-child transmission prevention and everything that requires. But we also need to normalize the human rights of people with HIV. We need to normalize the fact that uh, somebody with HIV can travel anywhere in the world. I mean, I just came from New York this morning. And, um, you know, if you're living with HIV, you can be denied access to the United States just as to about uh, 60 other countries in the world. That is unheard of, again, for, and this is for short-term travel. I'm not talking about immigration or whatever. Just to, if you want to go shopping, uh, apparently people do that, or just go to New York, I mean, I, but, uh, you know, or see a friend or go to a meeting. That should be normalized. But normalization, which would mean that we stop addressing specific AIDS issues and concerns for um, people at higher risk, or vulnerable populations, mentioned before, I think that would be a catastrophe. It would mean really an out-of-control uh, epidemic, and it would mean that we don't deal with the big issues. Now, we will not deal with sex education for children, that we will not deal with the requirements of sexual minorities, and we will, that there will not be harm reduction programs, a very controversial issue in injecting drug uses and so on. Fourth myth, and that is that prevention doesn't work. Okay, I agree, AIDS is a big problem, but you know, uh, there are two schools there. You have the, let's say, the hard scientist and saying there is not really as long as we don't have a vaccine, forget it, it's, uh, it's behavioral interventions don't work in general. Forgetting that um, we've had massive results of behavioral interventions on many things, smoking cessation, seat belts, um, drinking certain things. I mean, that's then the, from Coca-Cola to other things, that's the result of behavior change induced by marketing the big difference, of course, being that there is no substitute for sex. So it's not smoking cessation. That's the wrong comparison. But it means that if we are thinking it through, if we use the, the, the right approaches, um, it is possible. And we have empirical evidence that uh, prevention is working. But this is also a bit of an academic myth, in the sense that prevention experts spend their time trying to identify what exactly, you know, um, can we attribute it to, that change. And that is very difficult because we people, we are a bit more complex than just one thing. The fifth myth is the silver bullet myth. 
We had an example of that for those of you who read the science magazine last week. It was an article, and that also said, if only, um, you know, we circumcise all men, and then um, we are going to reduce so-called concurrent partners partnerships, we'll stop this epidemic. Again, ignoring a wealth of experience of, uh, um, of uh, studies, that, um, of evidence that you need really a mix of interventions. Combination prevention is of the same order necessary as combination treatment. Um, but I guess we have all a deep need and urge for the silver bullet. So this uh, will probably continue, but I say now that anything with the word only in doesn't work for, for AIDS, be it abstinence only or whatever comes up. And then the sixth myth I'm going to briefly mention is the myth AIDS has been dealt with. You know, we have some results that's recognized, so it's a complacency myth. Um, I, I've um, had that reply meeting with uh, some of the top political leaders in the world and who feel very good that there are results, and we should feel good about that. And I think now I can move to the next problem. Or my, my predecessor was very high on AIDS, but, you know, I need for my visibility and whatever, you know, and deep human urge, I, I'd like to work on something else. Um, AIDS has not been dealt with. We see an increase everywhere. We see where uh, in, in the West, as I mentioned, we see in Uganda an increase. Um, and uh, the truth is that um, if we would decrease efforts now, most of the investments that have been done and the billions of dollars or pounds that have been spent on it will be lost. We're, we're doomed to continue um, with our efforts um, until the bitter end. So when we plan uh, for the future, we must take into account all these uh, myths because they can have a really negative effect on it. So let me now move um, to the future to the need for a long-term view, long-term action uh, as we are entering this new phase, this new phase that we are having because it's, we are having results. So what are the key questions that we need to resolve? The first one is something that um, keeps modelers busy, but we, is the big question, how will the epidemic evolve? Particularly questions about on the one hand, potential for so-called generalization outside those at highest risk, particularly in Asia, uh, where over half of the world's population is living. Um, also knowing that um, there's a lot of social change going on all over the world. Positive so social change, negative social change, social change in the sense of more conservatism, if you want, in terms of or fundamentalism, uh, or also in terms of more um, risk for HIV. There's definitely a sexual revolution going on for women in many parts of Asia, starting in Japan, where this is now very well documented, where today young women have as many sex partners on the average as men. It's very disturbing for men, but it's the, it's a, this is fact. That's the... I was... <laughs> In Japan, there were some of the questions, of the reactions. But it's true. So what will that mean on a large scale? 
What will happen in, 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 in the hyper-endemic countries in southern Africa? We don't really know at the moment, but that's something that's a big unknown, and certainly. Second question is, um, what about the politics and the leadership? The history of AIDS is one of good politics and bad politics. When there were good politics, we made progress. For example, the, the most striking example, I would say, is on harm reduction and injecting drug use. Um, those countries that are still not going for needle exchange, needle access, uh, methadone, substitution therapy, and so on, are seeing skyrocketing epidemics in um, injecting drug uses. And that's sometimes within the same country, like in the United States. Some states, some cities are doing it, and others not. It's, it's an unfortunate uh, natural experiment, but it's, uh, it's, it adds to the wealth of evidence. Um, China, two years ago, th uh, no, three years ago nearly, made a, um, a spectacular policy um, conversion and decided to go all stops out for harm reduction. And now there are over 500 methadone clinics, needle exchange programs. There's still, the old is still alive uh, or is not dead yet and the new is already alive in the sense that the, you have in one city, if you are lucky, you're arrested and you have drugs, you, you go to the methadone, etc. center, and if you're bad luck, then you end up in a detox center. So the, the two systems are still there, but policy change have happened. Um, bad politics, the, the fact that uh, uh, a lot of money um, was allocated by U.S. Congress on uh, abstinence-only programs, where we have, which is not often the case, but we have scientific evidence that it doesn't work, because we rarely have evidence that something does not work. In this case, we, we do have that evidence. That's a waste of taxpayers' money, to use that American terminology. Um, so how will that, um, this political leadership uh, evolve over time? And my view is that we need to make sure that it doesn't depend on individual leadership, but that it's institutionalized. Again, talking about the U.S., at the moment there's a debate about um, the reauthorization of the funding for um, the American AIDS program, PEPFAR. And there is basically a bipartisan um, agreement between the, the Democrats and the uh, Republicans for about $50 billion over the next five years. $50 billion. That's quite a lot of money, including $9 billion for, AIDS, for tuberculosis and malaria. Um, and um, so institutionalizing it among the re elected representatives of the people, but also in be it in churches, in, uh, in organizations of all uh, kinds. Thirdly, um, the big question for the future is, um, how will we pay for all this in the long run? If we start thinking of AIDS response with a decade as a unit and not a fiscal year, and just thinking of um, treatment, as we know, is for life, but prevention is also for life and is for generations, um, we can't deal with this epidemic on the basis of a fiscal year. So how are we going to do that? Um, maybe a few points. First, as I said before, the, needs, the need is only going to grow. Even if by some miracle 
um, no transmission of HIV would happen as of this very moment, more and more people will need uh, treatment. That's the most expensive part. Um, secondly, um, the sources of funding at the moment are quite diverse, but not enough diverse. One-third of the $10 billion comes from domestic budgets of uh, low- and middle-income countries. And countries like Thailand, like Brazil, uh, India, um, even South Africa, are paying for most of the, their AIDS work from their domestic budgets, either directly or through a loan from the World Bank, as is the case in, in India. Um, and I think, actually, that it's not healthy that a country would depend on foreign aid for the daily survival of hundreds of thousands of its citizens. You can wonder what's this, uh, for the, the maybe political scientist here, but, you know, what does that mean? Are you still a sovereign country if you have um, a few hundred thousands of your citizens whose daily survival, daily survival depends on a, a vote in um, U.S. Congress or uh, a budget decision in, in DFID? That's very worrisome. On the other hand, the poorest countries don't have a choice. For many years, they will depend on foreign aid for this kind of uh, treatment and particularly. Um, so for middle-income countries, I believe that we, uh, it should be possible to go for uh, um, full funding, uh, domestic funding, perhaps except in southern Africa. Countries like Botswana, uh, like Swaziland, um, who unfortunately are excluded from the most favorable conditions for foreign aid because they are above a certain cutoff uh, for, and, and are therefore low or high, high middle income country. Um, and I think there we need to uh, review the rules. We need to rewrite the rules. AIDS has rewritten the rules of many things. We need to rewrite the rules also for international development. You can't assistance. You can't just use a mechanical cutoff for those countries that are becoming undeveloped because of AIDS, Botswana being the case, a country that's very well managed, but unfortunately has this um, enormous AIDS burden. We also need to look not only at the, um, the size of the funding and also where it would come from, but also where is it going to? Is it always used for the best purpose and where it can make the biggest impact? And the answer is no. Um, for example, in UNAIDS, we are doing so-called spending, um, uh, spending accounts of, um, for AIDS in countries and to see where is the money going. I know for, in Latin America, most of the epidemic, with a few exceptions in countries, is among men who have sex with men. And with the exception of Mexico and Peru, there's hardly any money going to programs for men who have sex with men. So a lot of money is spent, but not where the epidemic is. Um, and lastly, we need to make sure that we can buy more for the same amount of money. So in other words, drive down the unit cost, the most obvious example being the cost of, in, uh, of drugs, but it's also how we do business. Um, some studies have found that, for example, in Russia, the, um, um, the unit cost to counsel one person voluntary counseling and testing and so on, that the difference between the most expensive center and the, the cheapest is about 1,000 difference. 
Some of this has to do with scale, but some of it also with how it's funded. Fourth question is that, will we be able to keep up the pace on treatment? As I said, still so such great needs. And as I mentioned, um, the introduction of antiretroviral therapy has revolutionized uh, how we deal with AIDS. Um, here, I believe really that we need to um, rethink completely what we're doing, invest more in capacity building needs, the health systems, the workforce, um, and think far better about how we're going to deal with the unavoidable uh, resistance development issue. In Brazil, over the last two years, the average cost of uh, treatment has doubled. And that is because second-line drugs are so more expensive, even in Brazil, which has negotiated quite good prices for its uh, antiretrovirals and, and is um, producing some of them themselves. Now, some of these second-line drugs are more expensive, regardless who makes them. But we haven't had the same type of uh, generic competition, the same type of uh, negotiations that uh, I did a lot of that myself that we've had for first line, and that we have to look at also. And um, while at the same time making sure there are new drugs in the pipeline, that we don't uh, kill uh, innovation. Fifth, will we have significantly reduced the number of new infections? We must do much better on prevention, as I said a few times. Some results, but it's not the same movement that we see for access to treatment. Um, so for me, the first challenge is actually building that constituency, building a movement, an activist movement on prevention. Last year, there have been marches organized by the Treatment Action Campaign in South Africa, which is now the mother of all activists in the world, um, for prevention, asking for sex education in schools, asking for condoms in schools, and so on. Um, but that's more the exception than the rule. So that is really going to be really important, but how to do that? It's not so easy. And that's a problem that we find across social issues, not just in, in, in AIDS. We'll also have to be, do better in knowing exactly where our epidemic is, what is going on, so where to concentrate our efforts. Because what we often do in the programs is reflects where the epidemic was 10 years ago, not where it is now. And it is changing. Um, thirdly, I mentioned the importance of ensuring there are good politics, and I would say, finally, that devoting far more attention to social change. And there are many, many other questions. I won't go into detail. We, know, we don't know what science and technology will bring. But I think what is sure now, this today, after last year's debacles in, on, on vaccine research, is that there will be no vaccine um, in, the, you know, in, the next, in the foreseeable future. And uh, we are now back to the drawing board. So a huge number of ifs and uncertainties around the future. And, and that's fine. Uh, I think uh, the last Belgian who got a Nobel Prize got it because he demonstrated you can't predict the future. Um, it's not a joke. Prigozhin, who is the, the father of chaos theory. Um, but, um, but we can create a future. If we act today, we can change it. And uh, so this brings me to the end of my um, presentation. And... Um, um, is exceptionalism still 
um, something that is true, is valid for AIDS? The answer is yes. Not only because its impact is tremendous, but as I mentioned, it behaves unlike any other health problem in terms of the, uh, who it affects in the socioeconomic categories. We have the stigma. You can go to any country in the world if you have diabetes, but not if you have HIV. Um, I also think that the boundaries between um, an infectious disease and a chronic disease are being blurred with AIDS, particularly now that the treatment is there, but even without that. And then the fact that it affects young adults. So definitely it's still there. What are now the implications of the various elements I brought on? One, the fact that we have results. Two, that the epidemic is still evolving. Three, that we need a long-term view. And four, that it's still an exceptional phenomenon. I think the first implication is really that we must uh, change the way we approach this epidemic. And in everything we do, in every plan, every program, um, we must take this long-term perspective, not only deal with the, the problem of today. Now, that's easier said than done. I try to do that, and every Sunday evening I think about my week, and I said I want to be strategic and that we act according to the core business of the organization and so on, and by Wednesday I've completely diverted from that good intention because of the crisis of the day. But still, we need to keep an eye on the best possible outcome in the long term. It doesn't mean long-term view doesn't mean that we wait until 10, 20 years from now to act on it. Now we have to, to make sure that what we do has the best possible outcome, meaning, for example, that we need to pay more attention to prevention also and thinking through the capacity issues. Secondly, that for decades to come, decades, we will need to sustain AIDS efforts and expand them. Any decrease will mean in not only loss of lives, but also of the previous investments and economic terms. Thirdly, we need to expand the constituencies and the people who are involved in the work, going beyond the, the AIDS um, activists and those who are working on AIDS, like me. And as I mentioned, this means that for programs, social scientists, but also people who know something about management and implementing programs. Fourth is that where we can integrate the work on AIDS, we must do it because it may be cheaper. For example, access to treatment as long as it's ring-fenced for treatment, for the, the funding. good example is uh, Mexico. Another one is in Thailand where there is now nearly universal health insurance and access to health care. But the, uh, the government, in the case of both Thailand and Mexico, said, okay, there are certain entitlements, and one of them is access to antiretroviral therapy. In that sense, it was protected. So you've got both worlds together. But where it would be counterproductive to integrate, we should resist it. And that is about everything that has to do with prevention, particularly prevention of sexual transmission, the whole issue of, st of stigma, prevention on uh, injecting drug users. Because if we integrate that, I know what will happen. We will go the easy road and we won't tackle the difficult issues around sex and drugs. Fifth is that we need to invest far more in capacity. What does that mean? It's not only healthcare workers and health systems, it's also community capacity. It's the capacity to negotiate prices and so on. And lastly, we must consequently allocate resources to AIDS. 
Um, I know that um, DFID, the uh, UK is actually um, developing a, uh, a new strategy around AIDS. So I hope that the UK will also, like the US, will continue to set an example by committing to a, a specific spending target. Why is that important? It's a matter of accountability. And it's also a matter that um, a commitment that this is not an issue that you can deal with fiscal year by fiscal year. Three years ago, when the UK hosted um, the Glen Eagles G8 summit, some commitments were made to um, universal access to treatment and then afterwards the General Assembly to HIV prevention. So it is really, uh, there is an engagement at the highest political level and that must be honored. All this means shifting gear, not doing less on AIDS, but doing more. And um, making sure that the response to AIDS is at the heart of development practice, not outside, but that it will continue to transform development practice, continues to challenge the conventional way we're doing business, but also we, from the AIDS side to say so, we must learn the lessons from those who have been working on long-term development issues, because now we have to come together. Thanks for listening. Yes, yes, I can come down. Sit down. Whichever you like. Welcome. If you're in a rush for a train or something, now's the time to go. If you have questions, please don't... Oh, you're not holding back. Good. Don't hold back, because people always hold back until the last minute, and then I'm saying, no, sorry, no more. Gentleman there. Thanks. Um, Harold Schmidt from the Nothing Council Bioethics. I was wondering if you could say a few words about whether it might be time to routinize testing. So certainly uh, VCT, uh, in the sense of voluntary counseling and testing, made sense in the early phases of the epidemic when there were no ways of managing the disease. But what we've seen since is that countries like Lesotho, say, or Botswana have moved from VCT to routinized testing to an opt-out version. Now. Um, do you think that makes sense? Is, is that maybe the case that these countries are exceptional, that it makes sense in those countries but not in others? Or have they made a mistake? Are they caught up in your myth three that we mm -hmm. shouldn't normalize um, uh, HIV in this case? If you want to take it. Yeah, yeah you and then Right. Next question. Yes, gentlemen there. I think you talk. Um, Can you say who you are and oh, if okay. you have an affiliation of a uh, organization? Baker, um, I will go from the mic. Um, what do you see as the key challenges of pediatric HIV treatment and uh, what pediatric. are UNAIDS? Was that the key challenges of pediatric HIV? Yes. Okay, thank you. And another one at the back there and one at the back uh, up there. Uh, Nick Partridge from Terence Higgins Trust. Peter, I was really pleased to hear your very realistic focus on the challenges that prevention face. And I speak as one of those white middle class gay men uh, that do remember 1981, uh, and I'm still here. Um, and I'd like, I'd appreciate your comments because you mentioned at right at the beginning of your talk that you were concerned about some elements of the response to HIV here in Britain. And certainly one um, is very clear to us, and that's the reduction in funding. 
for prevention work across the board. The lack of political focus uh, and commitment to creating even the basics of sex education in schools uh, in the UK has been compulsory uh, and well taught. Um, through to a continued decline in the investment uh, of uh, HIV prevention work for those most affected in, in this country, gay men uh, and, and African communities. So I'd like to appreciate your comments on how we can see a move to understanding that prevention is the new rocket science. If the development of drugs was the rocket science uh, of the 1990s, the development of sustainable behavior change, the programs that people really buy into, isn't that the rocket science uh, for the Nautilus? And the gentleman up there. Uh, my name is Raphael, I'm a medical student and also part of the Stop AIDS campaign. Um, we've been quite working quite hard on the UK strategy um, that you've been talking about um, and relating to the specific funding target that you mentioned as well. Um, what can we do in a climate where there isn't the finances that were available before, where there is a more um, a greater focus on health systems, as you mentioned? Um, what can we do to persuade DFID and to make sure that there is a spending target? And if there isn't one, how do we react and, and what are the consequences of that? I'll take those four now. I can see there are other people already lining up for the next next group. Peter. Okay, thank you. All, as they say in the UN, all, thank you for your questions. Because um, they're, no, they're all very good questions. And on routine testing, um, and UNAIDS and WHO, we have a, a, we changed policies basically um, now, I think it was already a couple of years ago. Uh, particularly for the countries you mentioned, hyperendemic countries as, as we now call them, where um, we felt that a far more liberal uh, offer of testing was really important. And uh, it has resulted in some countries in, in a far uh, greater uh, identification and earlier identification of people living with HIV and therefore could be, uh, um, you know, offered treatment. There are uh, several schools that, though, I mean, also in South Africa, within treatment action campaign, there are those who say test everybody, and then there are those who more on the other side and say we, we need, always need consent. Um, we're a kind of a, a fairly pragmatic, um, but uh, when it comes to countries like China, Russia, and so on, we're dead against this kind of approach. And the reason being that the uh, stigma the, the, the consequences of testing are, can be so negative that the, the, the harm that is being done is much greater than the, the benefit in most cases. But in the case of uh, the countries that you, you mentioned, we're, uh, we're fully supportive of it uh, as long as there are certain conditions are being um, safeguarded. For example, confidentiality. Um, the fact that also treatment is available. Um, that there is always the, the option of, of uh, opting out. But, uh, uh, but we have changed, and I have changed myself also, my mind, in, uh, from that perspective. On pediatric uh, treatment, yes, the, um, the coverage of treatment for children is much lower than for, um, for adults in, in, in the world. And... Uh, Many challenges. One diagnosis in the children is, is much more difficult. The price of uh, antiretrovirals uh, for children up to recently um, is much higher than for adults. 
even if the dose actually is much lower, but that's the, the market is smaller. Thirdly, the, um, um, often there were no pediatric formulations, and uh, you know you have to crush a tablet and, and all that. Um, I think that there is, it is slowly changing now. Um, we've been working quite hard on this, um, and step by step, um, and that's particularly led by UNICEF uh, in, in our case, and we're trying to also uh, integrate it as much as we can with other uh, childhood uh, diseases. But, um, but it remains a, a formidable challenge. I think that uh, um, in the future we should concentrate quite hard on, the, uh, on that issue in, in highly affected countries because I think there it could make the biggest difference. Nick, on your um, reduction in HIV prevention funding and is, is a phenomenon all over Western Europe, and we're seeing what the, the consequences are there. I mean, it can be in... Uh, I'm, I was surprised to hear there's still the whole issue of sex education in school. I mean, that's again one of, I mean, I'm an optimist, otherwise I wouldn't be in this job. But what's sometimes discouraging is that we have exactly the same discussions today than 20 or 30 years ago before there was even HIV, and, and one of them being, um, you know, meaningful sex education. Um, I like your soundbite, prevention is the new rocket science. Um, I think we probably have to in, in involve and include now far more um, the people themselves and, um, and then also, I would say, marketing specialists and so on. You know, if you can sell washing power, which and there's, there are 15 brands, why would I go for X and not for Y? And, but um, uh, about a month ago, I, was, uh, we, I co hosted a meeting with, at Google, the Google Plex, so called, where, um, with about 40 young people. And uh, they were self organizing and coming up and very critical about HIV prevention programs and said, you know, you need to use, I mean, we are going with text and we do this and, and chats and so on. And, we're at the moment that's being used mostly to make the sexual connections if you want, but not for making them safe. And that's just one example that I was thinking of. In, in, uh, in Kenya, um, this is uh, with PEPFAR and uh, some youth groups, they're now starting to use also the, the youth culture for HIV prevention. And I think that's what we need everywhere. I mean, if in the, in the 80s, gay communities were so successful, it's because prevention was done by the gay communities. And uh, there were no, or in most cases, no national programs and all that. I mean, in the UK here, there was a strong support of uh, the government, but that's different. Um, on the AIDS strategy, UK AIDS strategy, DFID, what can we do? Um, and what if uh, there is no target? Um, I think here I have to uh, opt out a little bit. Um, but uh, we have to do everything we can to make the case, in essence, because um, DFID has been um, a major player in the uh, response to it in, in many countries, has spent uh, serious money on it. And, and, uh, and we've always applauded that. And I think that now, there can be no way back, you know. Um, so, 
and, and, and my concern is that if there is no spending target, what will be the, how to say, how do you call that the, 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 in English? The, 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 the goal post, final or goal. The final, you know, to hold uh, organizations accountable against. And um, that, is, uh, that is really uh, uh, important. But I think it's, it's, it's the British people who have to deal with the British politics. Oh, difficult. Right. Um, and then this lady at the front and this gentleman on this side, please. Peter, I've spent quite a long time in Mozambique. The Minister of Health there said has a big problem with AIDS um, exceptionalism. They say, well, we need a whole lot more focus on many, many other diseases. We have like 10, 20 other disease epidemics even beyond what the, uh, the focus of the Global Fund. Um, what's the solution to this? Okay, and there was a lady, oh, a lady here in the front, middle front, there we are. Yes, past oh, Can you say who you are, please? Um, I'm Alexis, I'm a master's student here at LSE. Um, you spoke earlier about the feminization of AIDS, and I was wondering if you could speak towards some of the more female-geared health technologies in development now um, as, a, as the potential to help combat this, um, whether through political leadership or resource allocation, um, and looking at maybe some of the challenges of the acceptability in the market um, and the potential you see for that. And the gentleman on the left-hand side there. And while we're up there, we could do one other question upstairs. So think about it while he's asking his. Uh, Jeff Garner, Imperial College. Uh, Peter, it, it seems to me that a large uh, part of the, the development of the antiretroviral treatments was the, the driving force from the market to, to, to create the drugs. And I'm wondering whether you think there are any potential mechanisms that the international uh, community could use to create markets that could promote prevention uh, interventions and uh, development of better prevention tools. Anybody hmm. thought of another question up there? Too late. And there's one down the back <laughs> there, please. Lady, right at the back, please, and then we'll come round for another round, which will probably be approaching yeah, the last yeah, round. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of talk about why prevention's failing, but we know um, how to dramatically reduce vertical transmission why, why hasn't that been, what are your thoughts on why that hasn't been addressed? And also, can I just ask for a point of clarification on um, the first question about testing? Um, you said that um, one of the reasons that, that you wouldn't encourage routine testing in China and Russia was um, because of stigma and the negative impact of stigma. Could you elaborate a little on that? Because I, um, do you mean institutional or systematic stigma and, and uh, comment on um, on that in relation to the negative aspects of not knowing your status if you are positive. Mm. Okay, so while these questions are being answered, please think of the next four. There'll be the last four questions, and I see yes. one lady at the back there already. So okay. we won't go for that. Yeah, Mozambique. You know, Mozambique is uh, one of the few countries in uh, Africa where there's still a major um, expansion of the HIV epidemic. Um, and... Um, this is an example also of a country where we've seen a shift in leadership on AIDS. Um, and it's true that Mozambique is struggling with many problems, many. And in the health sector, I think we have to recognize that it is one of the lowest uh, per capita uh, ratios for healthcare workers and so on. So that's all true. 
I think that, I, let me compare it with Ethiopia. Equally, very poor country, and so on. In Ethiopia, the, the government says, okay, we don't care what the source of funding is. These are our priorities. And, uh, and if the money is given because of AIDS or because of anything else, we will make sure that part of that is being used to build capacity, to do, to train, whatever, you know. And I think that is the, that is the solution. I mean, the, um, a country should not uh, being dictated by donors what, what to do. Um, and, uh, uh, but that requires that there is a strong government. Not necessarily, I'm not saying a dictatorship, eh? a strong government meaning that has, that knows what its priorities are and that was developed with the people. And uh, I, I'm quite well aware of this, these discussions, but um, I, I think that rather than to, um, uh, as I sometimes hear, to complain about these things, just try to find the best, the, the best solution. And uh, for example, uh, in the case of Mozambique, um, to, uh, to use AIDS money as was done elsewhere to strengthen laboratories to uh, make sure that there is a, an information system. So you can have a lot of um, positive side effects that will be beneficial for everything. Now, I know that's an easy answer, and I know the situation is extremely complex because it is also linked with institutional politics um, where a Ministry of Health uh, can be frustrated because there is a National AIDS Council, as the case of Mozambique, which is chaired, I think is the Prime Minister, or I can't remember what this, um, but... Um, and, uh, and where there's then rivalry and so on. So that is, it's also about control sometimes. On the uh, feminization, really important issue also. Um, there's intensive research going on to develop a microbicide, a product that women can put in the vagina so that uh, during heterosexual intercourse, um, HIV can be eliminated uh, or killed so that there's no infection taking place. Um, up to now, all attempts have failed, but I'm a strong believer in it because the concept is so simple. It's so straightforward that it must work, um, and the, the, the market would be enormous. Uh, the good news is that there are also um, uh, companies that are quite engaged in it. Um, it's not only academics, uh, researchers, and um, I think we just have to continue to, to uh, find out until it, we find a product. There is a shift. The, the big problem is the following, is that the, um, how do you say that in English? It's not the active product, but what, the cream or whatever. The, the, the presentation. The, yeah, the, the, the vehicle or whatever is, that that cannot be toxic. So I've always said, you know, why don't you work with L'Oreal or one of the cosmetic companies? No, because the first thing there is that it doesn't do any harm, and it's being used by millions, if not billions of, of people, and, uh, and but it has to be absolutely doing no harm when you put it in the vagina because several of the studies found that um, uh, those women who were using it had a high risk HIV infection. But that is, a, for me, I think is a, is a, a very practical, a different uh, uh, challenge than making a vaccine. For the vaccine, we really, at, we're back to the drawing board, as I said. We have no clue what we're looking for, what is actually the correlate with infection. And... Uh, that is, uh, so I think it will be, um, we should have one, I don't know when, and then the matter will be to make sure it's affordable. And, and I think there are the marketing mechanisms that should work. Jeff, on the 
yeah, the, the market is still the driving force in developing new antiretrovirals even today. In a sense, um, if uh, AIDS would only uh, uh, have occurred in, in Africa, let's say, I'm not sure we would have these antiretrovirals. But there is a guaranteed market of people living with HIV today in, in high-income countries, which makes that there is a, a serious incentive for any pharmaceutical company to work on it. And, and, and we need that. We need that innovation. Um, I think markets creating for prevention for technological products, yes, that I can see. Again, a, a company like Johnson & Johnson is now working on, on microbicides, for example. I mean, it, it's... Uh, and that's because there is, they see a market incentive. But for behavioral social interventions, I'm not so sure. And I think there we need the public sector will be absolutely essential. And, but I think there, um, what I think the most about is, can we create something that is more of a movement and where are the constituencies? And I, I don't know the answer really. Um, why has mother-to-child transmission of HIV not been more successful, more widespread? Um, I was totally wrong on that when, when about, when was this, maybe nine years ago or something, when, when, ago that when it was discovered that you could use, in that case, AZT to prevent that transmission, I thought here we've got a classic public health intervention. You know, uh, you test a pregnant mother, uh, those who are HIV positive, you give this to her or the baby or whatever, and, and here we go, and it's not about sex and drugs, and everybody wants to save the babies. And it hasn't happened. And I think it illustrates several points. One is that um, um, the dire strait of how many women in the developing world are, you know, when they're pregnant and when they're giving birth. I mean, let's not forget there are half a million women every year who die in childbirth. It's enormous. And that is, there's no excuse for that. So that, secondly, also the overburdened health services, um, maternal and health services, and adding anything there is, is sometimes just too much. Thirdly, the stigma issue. Women would be tested, but don't come back for the test. And, and bad management, um, where it takes a, a week or two weeks to, to have your test result. Now, this can only work if you give the test result immediately while, you know, you can have that in 10 minutes. Um, and so we need, we need now what is being done in some countries a, a far more comprehensive approach. And there are several countries where it's working. In Botswana, for example, over 90% of pregnant women in need are now being covered by this kind of program. And uh, I can't remember the figures for other countries, but it's some 50, 60% in a few. And uh, so it is possible, but uh, we, um, uh, that's, that's one of the areas that I, I feel strongly where um, the, we should team up with people who are into health system strengthening, because that is a very good indicator, just as maternal mortality is, a, is an indicator of whether your system functions or not. Um, clarification on testing. Yeah, we've seen that um, in, um, in quite a few countries that um, the, the, the social exclusion, the, the rejection and the, the discrimination when somebody is HIV positive and the abuses, losing your job, um, so on, going far beyond even free movement um, are enormous. And I think you need a decent human rights framework 
um, before I believe you can introduce on a wide scale this kind of testing. But in Russia, uh, certainly in the old Soviet Union, um, I can't remember the number, but uh, the number of HIV tests done per year was just enormous. It didn't do a thing against the epidemic, you know. Um, but um, and that widespread testing was kind of not accompanied by any education or so. That, that is now changing. But uh, I, I think that um, you can't isolate a, uh, uh, let's say, a medical intervention from what's going on in society. That's, that was actually my, my point. I think it was 32 million. Yeah, yeah some per year or something like that. Something yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I think right, we have two million. And that lady over there, and that's it. Yeah. Monday. Deprive what? Sorry? Women of agency. Ah, okay. Make them into poor yeah. things. Yeah. And that lady there is the last question. Thank you. Uh, my name is Philippa News. I work for an NGO called Tear Fund. Uh, Dr. Peter, my question is, I wonder if you could speak to uh, what you feel that the role of civil society is in this long-term view, and um, particularly... a sustainable response um, in light of donor funding preferences which are going towards direct budget support, uh, multilateral programs and with a health intervention focus. Thank you. Okay. Um, on the spending where the epidemic is, um, what we are trying to do uh, just in a, um, is to um, help uh, countries and even sub-regions um, in countries to better understand the epidemic, what we are slogan is know your epidemic and then act on that epidemic. Um, and uh, we don't always have the, 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 the tools for that refined, but we, we've really been working a lot on this. Uh, and um, so going to a response that is far more bedded in the local realities rather than a blueprint that's good for the, for the world. Um, what is our role in that? I think it's mostly one of convening and, uh, and the technical support and so on. Um, on the uh, feminization, yeah, for me it's a, it's a description, uh, descriptive term, but uh, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. What, what I would say is that what we are, um, what I think is totally counterproductive and what I've detected even in some of our own publications here in AIDS is presenting women as kind of a passive uh, sexual beings and you know and when a woman is HIV it's because she was raped or whatever I mean which of course happens a lot and so particularly in the, when you look at the epidemic in southern Africa but it is really not uh, the, the discourse can be very counterproductive about uh, that I, I, I agree with that and so if there is another way of describing it it's fine with me I don't know what, uh, how to do it but, but it is a phenomenon I mean I was even for Eastern Europe, I, I, I had not internalized how every year at 
percentage of women among particularly new infections is going up. And understanding it is also extremely important. That's part of the, you know, knowing your epidemic. But then um, the operational implications may be totally different, may not mean dealing with, working with women, but could also be working with men. Um, question from a colleague from the Tier Fund. Um, but there, donor behavior is very different. In the U.S., the, the government agencies, they only support NGOs or let's say non-governmental organizations, but of, there are all kinds. And no money goes to the government. Um, in, in Europe, it's sometimes the other extreme, and I think both are kind of uh, absurd um, because in terms of a, a response to uh, not only to AIDS, but for development in general. I mean, we talked about gender, for example, women's empowerment and so on. I mean, you need a legal framework, you need a, a government action, but you need the... Um, civil society groups, and I frankly cannot imagine a response to AIDS that is effective without civil society groups, um, particularly when we go into um, groups of, you know, where the epidemic is in many countries, um, where the government has either no credibility or is even oppressing, uh, you know, the fact, I mean, there are homosexuality is a crime in, in several countries, and so on. Um, so I would say that the, um, there it's important to invest in the capacity of civil society locally. That would be, I mean, what the Chavi AIDS Alliance, a bit of a PR for you there, but uh, I mean, no, what your, uh, your core business is, and I think that is in the long term extremely important, but we should not neglect also the capacity of governments, of the public sector. It, it needs both. I, I, and, uh, you know, theology is not only in religion that you find it. You find it in development as well. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank DFID once again for sponsoring this series of lectures, specifically in terms of what you've said about targets and goals and, and, and the uncertainties about DFID's position. Um, but DFID has actually funded this series of lectures in one form or another now for eight years, and we have another two or three years funding to go. So we do need to be aware of that. Secondly, I'd like to thank some people who are very important in putting on these lectures, and that's the events people and the stewards, who behind the scenes uh, get this whole system organized so that you get your seats and the thing starts on time and everything's switched on. And I'd like to thank the audience, because the audience is, I know a lot of you here actually, and I know, I hope to meet more of you. It's a fantastic audience for a fantastic speaker. Um, Peter, am I allowed to say you're standing down? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Peter is standing down from UNAIDS at the end of this year, and we've had fantastic privilege this evening of somebody who has probably the best overview of HIV AIDS epidemic in the world. He has 15 years experience, he's been managing on a day-to-day -day basis He's led the organization in the most extraordinarily charismatic and at the same time low-key way. Um, he carries with him his ideals, as you will see, in the quite critical statements contained within this speech. I asked you to be controversial, and you have been actually quite controversial. Thank you very really? much for that. I, you didn't notice. You didn't I contain myself. <laughs> uh, he, next year, when you've stopped being in charge of UNAs, you can be even more controversial publicly. Um, but it, it has been a remarkable lecture. I like